Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon, who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash aerospace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thanks for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Carl Copeland is the founder of Mobius Aero, an electric air race team, and Muse Motion, a developer of custom high-performance electric motors. Carl has built various engineering teams and led innovation in the fields of IT, mechanical, magnetic, and electrical design. He has founded four companies and holds over 25 patents and his most recent innovation, the Field Modulation Motion System, is a novel electric motor design that is significantly lighter and smaller than established electric motors of similar power and torque ratings. The Field Modulation Motion System achieves its high performance by using 18-phase field modulation rather than the three-phase modulation used in standard motors, essentially emulating six separate three-phase motors attached to a single shaft. Carl is putting his new engine design to the test in the new air racing series for electric aircraft known as Air Race E. In contrast to typical air racing series, in Air Race E, aircraft race against each other on a course rather than flying isolated time trials. In the past, air races have been an invaluable means of developing airspace technology in a competitive setting, and Air Race E is reawakening the spirit of competition by launching the first fully electric airplane race series. So in this episode of the Airspace Engineering Podcast, Carl and I talk about his unique and autodidactic background in engineering, his goal of finding practical solutions to humanity's problems, the Air Race E competition and the origin story of Carl's racing team Mobius Aero, the technical details and benefits of his new electric motor, the impact this has on airframe development, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation as much as I did, but now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Carl Copeland. Carl, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Excited to be here today. So to start off our conversation today, I'd like to ask you a bit about your background as an engineer. So how did you get interested in engineering, or as a matter of fact, in aerospace engineering even? And how has your career evolved to where you are today? So um, I have taken a path that is uh, not the usual path. Um, And uh, to that point, I also don't recommend it. (laughs) Um, But uh, I did did not have a traditional path. Uh, So I I was kind of a a natural born uh, engineer in a lot of ways, which got me in a tremendous amount of trouble when I was young. Um, so, you know, I was constantly building contraptions and taking things apart, but I also had the reputation, 
that if it was broken, give it to me and I would have it fixed and running, you know, by the end of the day. And uh, the first time I rebuilt a motor, I was probably five. Um, and I, now keep in mind, it was a Briggs and Stratton, you know, uh, gasoline powered lawnmower engine. So it wasn't anything super sophisticated. And I think pretty much all I did was take it apart and clean it and put it back together. Um, <laughs> and I didn't mean to clean it, just taking it apart, cleaned it. Um, but uh, that being said, I mean, that's I've always had a proclivity for mechanical devices and mechanical machines. Um Unfortunately, I did not get to take the normal path uh, uh, towards uh, education and, and information. So I was uh, I grew up in a, an incredibly poor environment. Um, to give you an idea, I was the primary income for a family of six when I was 12. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and uh, doing a lot of uh, farm and, and ag work. And when my when I was 13, I had a brother a year younger, and then he and I were the the financial support for the family until I uh, politely evicted my parents when I was 19 and uh, finished raising my, my younger siblings uh, to the best of my ability. And, uh, and so as a result of that, um, I was the first male in my family to graduate from high school uh, to give you an idea of, uh, of, of where I came from. Um, Even though uh, I will say that, the smartest people I've ever known in my life, I worked with on a daily basis. Um, I, I tell people all the time, there's two people I will never, two types of people I will never intellectually challenge. I will never get into a math contest with a machinist, and I will never get into a problem-solving contest with a West Texas farmer. Uh, those, <laughs> two, <laughs> those two people are, 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 those two groups of people are some of the most uh, brilliant people I've ever dealt with. Uh, you know, you take a machinist, they can do multiple digit fractions and decimals at the same time and do it faster than you can punch it into a calculator and then do it right there in their head. Um, and the same thing with the, you know, the, the farmers out in West Texas. I mean, they live in one of the most harsh regions in the world, yet they produce just massive quantities of, of food and agricultural products. So they, and everything they do is fixed with bailing wire and duct tape. So, um, it's, uh, I grew up around people who knew how to think, even if they didn't have the, uh, the formal education. Um, and so that, that shaped me quite a bit. Plus the, the financial economic situation we were in, uh, growing up meant that we had to be resourceful. And I can't tell you the number of times that, uh, uh, and actually, to be honest, I think I got the majority of my engineering uh, skill from my mother. Um, I can't tell you the number of times we rebuilt the refrigerator or rebuilt the car, you know, the family car, you know, growing up. And so, um, that, you know, that was uh, obviously all those influences led to encourage my uh, my proclivity to uh, uh, take stuff apart and fix it. Um, and so uh, when I was 19, like I said, I had to I had to. Um, I had to take a, take a stand and, and kind of change the, the dynamic, give my brothers a, a fighting chance. And so, um, uh, I, because of that, um, I, uh, had earned some, uh, had earned a full ride to a couple of universities in Texas, um, both academic and athletic, but I had the choice to make my senior year as to whether I had to move across the state line or not. And, uh, it was go with my siblings and feed them or, and, and lose all my scholarships or, or stay. And I, I chose the first. Um, and so I, I was unable to go to university the way, uh, I had, had worked very hard and planned very hard to do. So 
what I did again was the unusual path, the very long and hard way. And, uh, and so I had to, uh, I had to completely self-educate. And really the only reason why I'm here today is because I happened to hit, you know, hit that, that right age in my, my early twenties where, and where the internet was a thing. And so had it not been for the ability to go to university online all by myself, I, you know, it would have been a much different uh, path for me. So, um, that's how I wound up here. Uh, so I'm completely self-educated and, uh, and as a result, it took 20 years longer than it should have. So, Oh, wow. Th- thanks a lot for sharing that story. That's really inspirational, actually. And I mean, out of all of that adversity that I, you must have faced, it's, it's very inspirational to hear that someone like yourself did overcome all of that adversity and still, you know, is, is a very successful aerospace engineer today. And I think that that's a very inspirational story. Um, just shifting gears a, a little bit to now what you're what you're doing today, which is basically you, you're a, a founder of of multiple companies, um, and we'll speak about two of them today. The first is Mobius Aero, which is an air racing team, and the second is Muse Motion, which is um, a company that that builds novel uh, electric engines. So let's maybe start with Air Race E first. What is Air Race E. So what is kind of the vision behind this kind of Air Race series? So um, Air Race E is um, a brand new electric Formula One air racing league. Now, I had never heard of Formula One air racing uh, before uh, being introduced to this new league. And I, I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and ran into someone who was out um, uh, promoting and trying to, to raise interest in it. And um, and I was at a, a startup incubator with my motor company, Muse Motion, and, and just in the conversation, uh, I was intrigued by what they were trying to do, understanding the insane engineering challenge that they were, they were, you know, proposing. Um, and so what Air AC is, is so it, let me, let me back up. So Formula One Air Racing uh, is, think of it like NASCAR in the air. You have multiple planes, eight planes at a time. They start on a runway. Um, they all take off together. They fly below 10 meters um, at over 250 miles an hour, wingtip to wingtip, and they race around a three-kilometer circuit. Um, and the first one to cross the finish line wins. And so it is a very fast, uh, very quick, very exciting race with uh, multiple pilots. Um, there's a class of airplane, but they're all, di- they come in all different shapes and sizes. Everyone's constantly trying to, uh, to optimize their airplane to get that little bit of edge over the, the next pilot. And so, uh, that's formula one air racing. I mean, it's, it's really, when I saw it, I'm like, people really do this. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, you, people are familiar with red bull air racing, yeah. but that's, that's pylon racing one plane at a time. So they're doing timed laps and they're racing against the clock. In this one, you've got, you know, humans racing against humans, um, uh, all together at once. And so they're, it, it's really quite an exciting, um, uh, sport, motorsport. Um, and so the, uh, there was the, the gentleman who was the uh, president of, uh, one of the air racing leagues called air race one. Uh, his name is Jeff Zaltman and he d- 
decided he well he he kept people kept saying when are you going to do an electric when are you going to do an electric and and it sit there and shoot on him not on him for a while and then he uh, finally said you know what i'm going to see if i can get interest in this and do it and so he launched air he, air race e as a result of that and like i said before i found out early early on uh about it as they were out you know trying to launch this uh this new league and so when i first when i first saw it i'm like this is man, these guys have no idea what they're asking. They want to race 250 miles an hour for eight laps in an all electric battery powered aircraft. That's, that's not going to go well for them. Like I, that was my first thought is like, this is, this is a huge, huge engineering challenge. I mean, there's a reason why we don't have electric planes zooming everywhere now. It's because a, the motors are too heavy for the power and B uh, you know, how do you get that energy on the plane for long enough to get to where you're going? And uh, so the battery, you know, power storage. Um, and so I was looking at it and I was, I shared it with a, a very close friend of mine. And he said, uh, you know what? I mean, look at what you're doing. So, so to, to, to qualify this, uh, my motor company, what we have is a novel new type of magnetic system. It's actually more closely related to a transformer than a motor, but the end result is a motor like motion. And so uh, I've been able to eliminate the, 85% of the steel normally found in a motor. Um, and uh, so I'm a 10th the size and weight for the same application. Uh, and so he was like, you know, with your, with your, with your motors, I mean, you guys would have a huge competitive advantage. He's, you should stand up a team. And uh, he said that. And I just, I sat there and thought about it for a minute. That's the most ludicrous idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I'm in the middle of a startup. Um, uh, things are already tight and I, I'm going to go stand in front of my investors and say, Hey, this thing you've funded and invested in me and to bring to market, I'm going to put that on the side and go, you know, chase down a, a race team. Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna do that. And then about three days, they just stuck with me. And about three days later, uh, it hit me. It was the most genius idea I'd ever had. Um, and so, because now I have the most extreme spectator motorsport on the planet, uh, where I can demonstrate my technology to the world. And if I can, if I can produce this type of, of motion and dominate in this high pace, high demand aerospace uh, application, then it, it would it would really be a tremendous showcase for the technologies we're trying to bring bring forward. And there's a number of technologies that we're we're trying to chase uh, uh, parallel at the same time. And so that's really um, that's really how I got involved with AirAC. I mean, I immediately picked up the phone, uh, got a hold of the uh, the uh, the league and and put my hat in the ring and I'm one of the founding of, I'm the one of the very, I am one of the founding official teams of the race league. So. Great. I mean, you, you could make the argument that, you know, kind of the history of uh, aviation, you know, back, back before world war two in, in the thirties, we had the Schneider trophy, which was a, a very big kind of um, kind of aquamarine um, aircraft racing series that um, in, as part of that competition, actually quite a few speed records were set, including by um, the supermarine aircraft, which then kind of like turned into the Spitfire in, in World War II. So there is definitely a great heritage of kind of using 
race races air races to develop technology further so i completely concur that in this case you know you're developing new technology and perhaps an air race uh, series is the the best way to kind of showcase um what you've been been working on so just as a kind of like follow up on air race e obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment but kind of you know, when will the first races be held? Is this already ongoing or is this something that's on the horizon very soon? Yeah, well, we were supposed to have our inaugural race back in last October, but uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the pandemic issues shelved a lot of that. It also um, dried up any opportunity for really for teams to raise any kind of sponsorship funding because, you know, when companies are having to shut down and lay people off, they're not really going to be investing into... Uh, into entertainment venues and, and sporting leagues. And so that, that delayed everything for everyone. Currently, um, the, uh, we have uh, scheduled what we're calling a qualifying event in uh, November uh, and December of next year. So, so there's, there's six official teams now. Um, I am the only team in all of the Americas. The other, the other five teams are in Europe. Um, and so, uh, I'm the only te official team in the Americas at the moment. Um, um, and so we'll have one qualifying race here in the U S in somewhere or somewhere around November. And I think they're going to do the, the one in Europe, um, in that following month in December. And that is basically giving teams a chance to kind of catch up with, uh, you know, the, the funding for the development and the finalizer planes. And so we'll all get to demo kind of our first shot in uh the end of uh, 2021 and then um the official season will kick off in probably q2 of 2022 and that's and eventually we'll be up to eight races a year um and so that's the that's the plan to start a full season in, in 2022 and, and just continue to build from there Great. Sounds, sounds super. I'm looking forward to, to, to the first races. It definitely sounds very exciting. Now, um, perhaps you could take me kind of behind the scenes of a kind of like day-to-day -day operation of an air race team. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, many of our listeners will work or will be working for kind of like an aircraft corporation or a company in the aerospace industry, but there are very few people that work for you know, air racing teams, and especially now with this kind of electric air racing, that's that's even more rare. So, you know, what does the kind of like day-to-day -day operation look like? And um, how is your kind of engineering development coming along? So are you kind of completely designing your own aircraft? Is there kind of outsourcing going on? H how does the kind of whole development cycle look like? So um, because of the type of global climate right now, as well as um, just the nature of trying to stand up a brand new team in a brand new league that no one's really heard of. Um, so it, we're really a little bit more ragtag than you'd probably imagine. Um, so I've got a team right now of, uh, of I think we're up to 15 and, uh, uh, and I've, you know, they're all volunteers. We're a complete volunteer team. So all of us have a full-time day job, if not more. So we got family and full-time work and all that. So we're all, um, we're all doing this in our evenings and weekends, uh, at a volunteer level. I'm uh, expecting that as we begin to, uh, bring in sponsors and, and increase our funding, that will change. We'll begin bringing people in full-time, but I've been incredibly blessed with being able to recruit an amazing group of people. And so, um, you know, so I have uh, our pilot we just announced back in uh, December is the uh, he was up until December. He was the president of the International Formula One Racing League. Um, 
and he is he is also the gentleman who uh, trains and certifies all F1 pilots. So there's a very specific training regimen. You have to show a certain level of skill or they won't let you in the air with other people in these kind of high demand races. And he was, he is actually the, uh, uh, the chairman of the pilot board. And so he trains and certifies all the F1 pilots that fly in the U S well, the majority of the F1 pilots that, that, that fly in the U S and he's uh, probably going to be doing similar things for, for this league. Um, but um, so I was very blessed. We have the premier F1 pilot and he's also built uh, most of his planes that he's raced. And, uh, and then on top of that, we're, we are using a specific platform and we're, we're going to be announcing uh, all of that uh, and starting to do some reveals to, to our fans and followers uh, here in the next m- couple of months. But um, we're, we're using a, uh, a relatively new type of uh, plane that was specifically designed for this type of F1 racing. And uh, uh, um, it's uh, called a snowshoe, S-N-O-S-H-O. And it's a very small, quick plane. It's a beautiful. It actually has a lot of lines that look very similar to the Spitfire. Um, but um, it's a, it's, I mean, these things, these planes are tiny little things. I mean, we call them flying go-karts or I call them flying go-karts. I mean, they're just, there's not, they're, they're so small. It it, it surprised me the first time I was standing next to them, how small they were, Um, but really quick. And, and so, but because we're doing, uh, we're using my electric system, um, we're able to modify the plane to a great extent to get a much better uh, aerodynamic profile and get basically get rid of the cheeks that are normally there for the piston heads and, and, and deal with the air and air intakes and, and scoops and stuff much differently. And so um, we'll be revealing some of those uh, models as we get a little bit closer. But um, what we're, you know, so we are kind of, we're taking a, an existing airframe and we're custom building it from the ground up with all new skins and, and redesigning it based on the, the power plant we're planning to put in it. Um, and then, uh, so I, and one of the, uh, one of the, the engineers who actually developed that system and did the, um, um, the aerodynamic modeling for the skin, the carbon fiber shell design, all that he is, he's an official team member. Uh, and, uh, and so he's working, uh, with us to redesign the, uh, the airframe in that way. So I have a, I have a high quality aerospace engineer handling that part of it. I'm, I'm focused primarily on the power plant, the, the motor and, and, and controls and, and battery systems. And then eventually we'll also be revealing a new, new type of uh, prop that that's ideal for the type of electric motor we're planning to use where we can you know, basically higher torque, lower RPM than what you would normally find on these planes. Great. So, I mean, it sounds like um, a kind of heart to, in, in this case, the kind of bracing design of the aircraft that you're developing is your power plant that you have developed and that is you're kind of commercializing through uh, Muse Motion, um, the company that you founded. So perhaps given that it's such a kind of integral part and important part of um, your race plane, let's maybe dive into some of the details of kind of the, the unique innovation that you've kind of come up with. So perhaps we could start with, you know, some of the shortcomings perhaps of current electric engines for aircraft and then how your design kind of improves on those. Yeah. So the, the, there's two major problems when you're trying to electrify airplanes. The biggest one is really the, uh, the ability to get enough power on board 
to, to, to do any kind of meaningful flight. Yeah, that's that's been the bane of all electric systems for for a long time, and and that's why there's so much being poured into battery technology right now. Um, but another huge uh, issue with motors is their weight. Um, the reason why we don't have robots walking around on the streets everywhere right now is not because we don't have the ability to do the AI and, and other sophisticated electronics. It's because the motors uh, are electric motors are so heavy compared to their torque that that they can't really pick themselves up after a certain certain size matter of fact all these robots you see on youtube like the boston dynamics robots the atlas and the spot those are hydraulically powered they have a battery pack and a motor that runs a hydraulic pump but all the actual articulated joints are are hydraulic and they use sophisticated uh, electric actuators to to control the hydraulics in order to create the motion you see. And so that, that is because the torque density of electric motors is, is not good for anything that has to move itself. Self. Um, so, uh, so the problem, again, with motors is they're giant bricks of steel. So you have laminated steel core on the inside that's on the rotor. You have a laminated steel core in the stator, and then you have copper windings wound all around that. And then, and if it's a permanent magnet motor, you also have big ceramic magnets in there. And so the giant, the whole thing's a giant boat anchor. There's just a lot of weight to it. Um, and uh, now don't get me wrong, they're very efficient and they're very strong. And again, depending on how you design them. Another problem with the motors is they have a relatively narrow operating window. So you'll see a motor advertised. So this motor is, you know, 99% efficient or 98.9% efficient or whatever number they throw out. But it's really misleading. And the reason it's misleading is it has to be running at a very specific RPM with a very specific load to reach that efficiency. Anything outside of that, I mean, it's really narrow. Anything outside of that and its efficiency, uh, it, it's a precipitous drop um, uh, in efficiency. So uh, you take uh, these little quadcopter drones that, that everyone likes to fly. Those motors are designed to be about 70 percent efficient and actually they would be happy if they could even get that They're usually running around 50 to 60 percent efficient the reason for that is is that in order so so one of the things that people don't understand about efficiency is it's efficiency is nothing but heat loss so the more heat you lose the lower your efficiency so um if you try to build a motor that doesn't lose any heat it's so big <laughs> that it's too heavy to fly and so they they design these motors to be lower energy efficiency because the weight savings extends the battery significantly compared to trying to get it to a higher power efficiency. And so those are, those are some of the things that are hard to kind of conceptualize to the average, average listener uh, on, on how efficiency really plays in, in an engineering environment. And so uh, that's the big problem with motors is to get them efficient enough uh they're too big and heavy and to get them light enough, they're very inefficient. And so there's this, that's why you really don't see much electrification in anything of large scale at all um, uh, for all those reasons. And so that's the, that's the primary challenge with an electric motor and a very powerful electric motor like you would need in a, in a race plane. Um, and so that's where, that's where what we're developing is kind of uniquely situated is uh I have been able to eliminate 85% of the steel 
in our design uh, from a traditional motor. And that, uh, plus I've been able to move the, uh, I'm going to wax into the engine, I've been able to move the radial gap further away from the center of rotation. Now, um, uh, every engineer's uh, familiar with the inverse square law. So you have the rotor that's in this usually, usually not always, but usually in the center of a motor. You have the stator, it's usually on the outside, but you have this one specific spot and it's the air gap between the two. And so you, you measure from the center of the axle or axis of the motor and you measure out to the radial gap and that distance is your leverage point. So that, that's, that's one of the key points that defines how much torque you can get out of the motor is called the outer radial gap. Um, in, in almost all motors, that radial gap is somewhere around the 45 to 50%, 50% of the radius. So, so if you had a 10 inch radius, then at, at four and a half to five inches, that's where the air gap typically is. And that's what one of the key things that defines the amount of torque you can deliver. And so for any given size motor, you know, you're, you've got less than half of that is where your, your torque advantage is, uh, with the new design of my motor, I've actually moved the radial air gap out to the 90th percentile. And actually the plane, the motor we're designing for the airplane, it's at 99% of the motor radius. And so that means if I can, you know, that means I get the square of that increase in torque just from the mechanical advantage. Um, and so, uh, and then plus we've eliminated about 85% of the steel um, because what I've done is it's called frag, I call it fragmented magnetic. So I've, I've taken these big chunks of steel and copper and, and magnet, and I've broken them up into smaller individual components and made isolated circuits that don't talk to each other, interact with each other. And, uh, and so by, by isolating the magnetics and fragmenting them, I, again, I got rid of 85% of the steel. And then I've got the square increase in torque based on the radius uh, increase of the gap. And, and therefore I wind up with a motor that is less than 10% the size and weight for the same job for the same application. So, okay. I'll, I'll try to summarize some of the stuff that you've, you've said mainly for my own ben benefit, but perhaps also for the benefit of our listeners. So the first thing you, you spoke about was this kind of uh, paradox or the difficulty of having a, uh, a motor, which is quite heavy, has a lot of material in order to reduce heat loss. But then obviously that will make the engine or the motor uh, heavier. And so there's this trade-off to efficiency that you could reduce the weight um, of, uh, the, of the motor, but then that would uh, increase heat loss again and hence reduce the efficiency. And so essentially what you've done, you've created a motor where this air gap is further out radially on the uh, on the rotor, and hence you get more torque out, uh, so you get more um, output performance. But you've also then done the second step where the kind of material that makes up the stator, I guess in this case, is laminated uh, steel, and that also then reduces the mass. But if you're reducing the mass, don't you then have the problem again of increased um, kind of uh, heat loss and hence uh, reduction in efficiency. So it's a little bit more uh, sophisticated than that. It's so all motors use laminated steel. You you basically break up the steel because um, you're think of it like a fiber optic cable 
for a magnetic field. Um, the you laminate it to stop eddy current losses and and things like that. It's, it minimizes eddy currents and interference and other things. And so it's just like a conduit, and it's better to have multiple fibers than one big rod. Like if you're thinking of a fiber optic, um, one big rod, you're going to have a lot of diffused lights. You can have a lot of losses. You do a bunch of tiny little glass fibers, and it's it's much much more efficient. Same thing with the the laminated steel and motor, but Moreover, what I've done is, is instead of trying to deal with one large macro system in the motor with lots of steel that even with all those laminations in there that, that are meant to reduce eddy currents, you have so much of it, you're going to have a lot of magnetic interference, you're going to have a lot of resistance, you're going to build heat. Um, what I've done is I've broken the motor up into tiny little isolated circuits. And because I've done that, I can control the relationship between the copper windings, the magnets, and the steel. To give you an idea, um, servo motors, for instance, they're really high-performance motors. They're like the hummingbird of motors. So motors have have a like a like a food chain, <laughs> if, if you want to call it that. But they have a that you have on one end, you have the hummingbird, which is the servo, and massive massive performance and speed and all that. But they have no load capacity. Uh, on the other end, you have the bull elephant. That's what's a traction motor in a locomotive. Massive amounts of power, not a lot of finesse. And so when you need agility and speed, you go for servos or a stepper motor, which is kind of like a, a downgraded uh, servo. And when you need power, you, you go to the, the traction motor. Um, and, and that's, and, but there's a limit to the size of a servo you can practically build because the servo is defined by how quick it is. And the bigger the motor gets, the more steel you have, the more steel you have, the more inductance uh, builds up in the, it's like a retained magnetic field inside the steel. And that slows everything down. It's like trying to run through molasses. And so everything gets slowed down and now it's no longer a servo. Um, and so, um, and that's due directly to the amount of steel involved in the circuit. And with mine, I can control the steel, the copper windings and the magnets, and I can optimize each little circuit to, to operate at maximum efficiency without um, adding uh, the weight. Again, I eliminated 85% of the steel that would, would comprise the weight. And so I'm actually able to control the heat, control the efficiency, and, and control the weight by, by fragmenting it and using smaller components optimized for that specific role. Okay, great. I think the analogy of yeah the, the fiberglass and how we don't just have one big kind of tube of, of glass to kind of propagate light, but it's actually fragmented in lots of tiny little fiberglass bundles is that that was that was a very clear analogy. Um, so I guess so now you've kind of described how your engine kind of allows you to have uh, basically reduce weights for the same amount of power output and have much better efficiency. And just to, to tie everything back together, you, you mentioned previously that the engine design basically then allows you to do all these clever and interesting things on the aircraft that you're developing for Mobius. So is that then mainly just down to the fact that the engine or the motor is more compact and therefore you have more room to kind of optimize the shape and the aerodynamics? Or how does the kind of motor design then play into the kind of optimization you've been able to do for the actual aircraft? Yeah, so the primary way you quantify a, uh, an electric motor is with what's called power density. So you're looking at how much power can I deliver per kilogram of weight. 
And so uh, where my motor really shines is that compared to all other electric motors, I can deliver, let's say that I had two motors of equal size. For instance, in uh, in the aircraft we're building, I have enough space in the uh, the front uh, uh, nose cone of the of the plane to put a 12 inch diameter by about 16 or 18 inch diameter motor in that aircraft. So if I were to have a 12 by 18 uh, electric standard electric motor, that thing would weigh, you know, probably, you know, 250, 300 pounds, maybe, maybe more than that. It might, I mean, it's, it's just a giant chunk of steel that's 12 by 18 inches in a cylinder. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, with, so with my airplane, I can keep that below a hundred pounds, but moreover, um, size for size, I'm also 10 times the, the, the power. And so 10 times the torque. Um, and, and so that gives me a distinct advantage to be able to put a tremendous amount more horsepower for the same cubic centimeters, uh, of space taken volume. Right. And so that's, that's really where we, we feel like we have our first strong advantages and why we're able to then modify the airplane um, to, to get rid of features that are normally there to accommodate for a combustion engine that has big heads and stuff. And so we're able to make a much stronger motor, much more compact, fit that in the airplane at a, at a lower weight cost, which, which means you can put more of the power you're carrying into moving the plane instead of just moving the motor. Um, and so that's really the, the primary advantage there is, is we get the size way down and the weight way down for the same power output, or we can put 10 times the power in the same footprint at still a fraction of the weight. So, so if you were to measure side-by-side -side motors, it would be about 20% the weight uh, at the same size, but then again, I had that 10 times the torque, right? And so it really starts, our advantages really start to, to add up uh, compared to conventional electric motors. Right. Um, and so looking into the future a little bit, of course, you know, electric motors you know power cars they power aircraft they they, they power kind of transportation much in, in a kind of in an environment much broader than just the aviation industry so what do you, how do you see the technology that you're developing at muse motion how do you see that technology kind of impacting not just the aviation sector but perhaps just the general transportation industry in the long term and perhaps even as you, as you mentioned before sectors like robotics yeah so that's one of the uh yeah so let me let me quantify what i'm about to say so 98 percent of all power produced in the world is produced by a motor um it's we call them generators but they're they're motors um and but over 60 percent of all the electrical power produced is consumed by a motor uh, it is the number one consumer of electricity on the planet. Uh, every single machine that you're operating, all the manufacturing, everything is electric. And that's that's not even counting all the combustion engines out there, right? So the electric uh, electric motors are 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 significantly um, broader than most people really think about. And so this is going to affect all all motors, not just transportation or robotics, although it does have a real sweet spot in the transportation sector. And so matter of fact, the motor that I'm designing for the airplane, uh, we're designing it so that it is a swappable 
um, power pack, emotion pack, emotion system is what I call it. And so, but where our plan is to take that same exact powertrain and drop it into a retrofitted vehicle, uh, you know, trucks, cars, motorcycles, delivery trucks, uh, semis, all of that. I mean, this is the motor we're producing is pretty significantly sized motor for the size airplane we're doing as far as the power output. And so, yeah, I mean, this is going to, this is going to revolutionize everything. Cause you think about, uh, let's take an electric vehicle application, for example. Um, now I've eliminated, um, 90% of the weight of the motor, uh, and we can quickly and cheaply produce it. And, uh, and, and so we've eliminated, we've reduced the cost of the motor. We've reduced the weight of the motor. And that means that that vehicle has that much more of an extended range because it's moving that much less mass, uh, of the motor. It's able to uh, apply that to either power savings or additional payload. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, um, you know, we're, we're, our, our stated mission uh, on the race team is moving humanity forward because, you know, yes, uh, the race is exciting and we're looking very much forward to competing and, 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 and performing and winning. Um, but really what we're wanting to deliver as a team is we're wanting to deliver that hopeful future. We all grew up envisioning the future being that's our finish line that we're going to cross is is delivering the pragmatic technologies that move humanity forward and so this this motor technology again when you're dealing with a robot for instance having a motor that is 10 percent the the size and weight um, uh, means that you can have large scale articulated robots that can perform at olympic athlete levels uh, and you can, again, you don't have motors that are added onto an exoskeleton or a frame. It's integral with that, that, uh, that composite frame. Um, but one of my most excited areas I'm hoping to, uh, to delve into soon is, uh, powered prosthetics and powered, uh, powered joint replacements and, and so forth. I mean, think about that. Think about being able to replace a lost limb. Uh, or an injured limb, or if you have any knee replacement, having a motor in your knee, you can wirelessly charge the internal uh, batteries or capacitor. Really, you, you wouldn't want to put a lithium battery in something like that, but you know, have like a, a bank, especially as they begin to perfect these super capacitors they're working on. You, know, you can wirelessly charge with a, with a pad uh, at night, and then you could have a, a knee replacement that does your therapy for you or helps assist you going upstairs. Um, or you can have a limb replacement where you can have Olympic athlete performances out of a prosthetic um, and, and really be a true limb replacement. Right now, even powered prosthetics, they're so underpowered compared to the natural body that they call, cause what are called uh, counterlateral uh, injuries where like if you played sports and you were to pull a muscle in your left leg, you had a high probability of pulling that same muscle in your right leg because that right leg was compensating for the weakness in your left leg. And so you were overstressing that contralateral or counterlateral um, mu muscle on the other limb. And so that's a real problem for people with uh, prosthetics is their, their other limb is taking the whole load and they're, they're more prone to injuries based on that. So being able to produce a powered prosthetic that addresses that issue and, and gives them natural or even above natural uh, performance in that prosthetic it would be just medically significant. Forget the whole idea of human cyborgs, which is also awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you just mentioned about kind of prosthetics, to be able to have effective powered prosthetics, kind of miniaturization is is key. But to be able to miniaturize, of course, you need to be able to have the power output, the torque output that you require at that small scale. And the best way to do that is to improve the specific torque or the specific power. And that's precisely what your engine does or your your electric motor does. And hence, it's yeah, it's, it's probably a unique application of the technology. Now, kind of what is you previously mentioned about um, how the Air Race E series will kind of develop over 2021 and in over the early half of 2022. But what, what are some of the things kind of on the horizon for Mobius Aero and uh, Muse Motion, what are some of the things to look out for in kind of 2021 and then also going forward? So we are um, we are about to reveal start be- revealing our motor technology, um, uh, giving people uh, glimpses, and that's one of the one of the really great things is uh, about the the race team and 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 how that is really being enabling us to promote the motor technology that that, that I've been developing, is uh, the ability to give people kind of a, a bird's eye view of world's firsts. And so yesterday we literally powered and drove the world's first paper motor, uh, in addition to powering and driving the world's first 3d printed motor. And so the ability to do these world's firsts, uh, in a public, uh, forum where we can showcase what we've developed and, and, and how it performs, um, is really exciting for us. Um, we're going to be revealing, uh, the airplane and the motor, in the next uh, two to three months, we're going to start giving snippets and, and putting out videos and, and, and photos and images as, as we're developing that. We will we expect to have the large motor for the airplane uh, done by the end of March, um, uh, if not you know if if not early April, if uh, you know depending on you know life happening. But um, we're targeting end of March for having that on the bench to be able to showcase that. So uh, we're not limiting our our display platform to the formula one air racing either we're actually going to do some stunts kind of in between here in the first set of races where we're going to like i said put this put uh, this power pack or a similar power pack into some other light vehicles uh trucks um but we also uh i have uh one of my team members that is uh uh he has a baja racing team and a uh uh, Bonneville Salt Flats racing team. And so we're planning on doing electric entries there to demonstrate the electric vehicle. You know, we're doing extreme environment electric vehicle performance on there. So those are some of the the milestones we're building to. We're, we're hoping to take our first flights uh, here in about three months. Um, we've got to get the motor on the test fixture, get it completely vetted, get it moved over to the plane and and do all the ground testing there. And then we're hoping we can get all that done in about three months and and get the approvals we need to get to start putting the airplane uh little short short test flights and so forth. So um we expect all those things to come uh as we as we begin to rapidly progress toward those races in, in November and December. Great. I look forward to seeing those. So um, how can listeners stay up to date with kind of all of the developments that you just um, spoke about? Where is the best place to go online, best place maybe even to go offline to kind of stay up to date with everything that you are doing? So the the easiest way to stay up to date is to go to our website and it's mobiusair.com, M-O-B-I-U-S-A-I-R.com. So mobiusair.com is our website. You can go to the connect, uh, 
uh, tab and and just fill out the form and we'll put you in our mailing list and event this year we're we're planning to start producing a monthly newsletter we hadn't got that kicked off yet but we're we're working toward that and and but we'll also uh, make sure you're the first to be notified uh when we have uh different accomplishments but we also have um uh, all the social media stuff we have a facebook page uh, mobius arrow uh instagram youtube rumble uh all this we're 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 doing our best to get on all the social platforms, both video and, and, and other social media platforms. And so, but you can find all those links on our website as well. Um, and then we've got a press section where as we come out with, with articles and we do amazing podcasts like this one, we'll, we'll post all that content there as well. And so by connecting with us there, um, we're going to be notifying you first as, as these new, uh, announcements and accomplishments. And, and then we're also, uh, come out and then we're also planning on having some special events that are, that are invite only to our fans and, and followers and supporters where when we decide we're going to do some, some field testing, uh, we'll send out invite, um, notices and say, Hey, you know, this, we're going to be this at this place at this day and this time doing these tests. If you're able to, uh, if you want to witness it, you know, come join us. And so we'll be putting those out as well off of the, the mailing list we build off of that connect form on our website. Great. Well, I'll be putting all those links in the show notes uh, for this episode. So, you know, Carl, it's been a really great episode. I've really learned a lot from you today. It's been really exciting to hear about something completely different, something that I didn't really know a lot about. So thanks for coming on the podcast and, you know, sharing your background and, and sharing all of the interesting engineering that you're up to. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you would like to learn more about Mobius Aero and use motion, then head over to airspaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you will find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Airspace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in, you can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.